0: certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon.
1: And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim?
0: Now, one man stands accused. If police are right, and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been
2: hiding in plain sight for 20 years.
1: Flown in from the UK, today the prosecution's star DNA witness took the stand. Welcome. This is week 14 of Claremont in Conversation. Good to have you with us. I'm Natalie Bonjolo, joined by the West's Tim Clark and forensic scientist Brendan Chapman. Well, this is the world-renowned expert we've really been waiting to hear from for many weeks, the man who ultimately, Tim, led to the arrest of Bradley Edwards.
2: Yes, through a long and winding route, Nat, but uh, he is at the heart of the discovery of, of Kira's DNA on Mr Edwards, um, allegedly, and uh, and that's what ultimately led us uh, led us to the trial. Um, as you say, dr. Whitaker is uh, is a very well-renowned, well respected for his pioneering work on the low copy number testing. Um, he, as he explained to the court today, um, he was at the heart of the very first case um, anywhere in the world that used this type of testing and this testing was actually developed. Before that case, he um, he explained it was one of the last men hanged in the UK, and uh, low copy number testing was developed to prove one way or the other ultimately um, that man's guilt. Um, and Dr. Whittaker was at the heart of that, and uh, then he was at the heart of the research and development and, de- and, and, and development of that testing over many many years um it's been used in lots of other cases lots of other high profile cases uh, and this one obviously being the latest um and he was uh, deemed so important by the prosecution that he was flown over the week over the over to australia over the weekend and uh, gave or began to give his evidence in person this morning
1: Brendan, can you just give us a recap on low copy number testing that Dr Jonathan Whitaker developed and how it helped in the extraction of DNA? Yes,
0: yeah, so like we've kind of discussed before and we'll, we'll revisit, um, when we analyse DNA, in order to uh, get enough signal for our machines to detect it, we need to undertake a process where we copy up and amplify DNA. And that's a process called PCR Um, we do that for all, uh, forensic DNA testing. We use it in a whole range of medical tests and pathology tests as well. It's a pretty well, uh, established and well, and, and fast spread technique. Now, normal DNA profiling techniques, I suppose that we would call our run of the mill routine tests, i.e. non-LCN, um, we go about that process of copying up DNA around about 28 times so if we start with one piece of dna we double it we double it we double it so we go one, two, four, eight, sixteen, 16 so on and so forth um for 28 cycles so you can imagine we end up with millions of copies um low copy number analysis or low copy number techniques only differ in that we undertake that copying process for more than 28 cycles or more than 28 times up to as many as know 35 36 times so um, rather than getting millions of copies we're getting you know millions upon millions upon millions um, more so that's kind of the brief overview of LCN we still look at the same DNA markers we still get the same DNA result whether it's been subjected to LCN testing or standard testing which is why we can compare one and the other it's really just how we arrive at that end result um, the technique, the variations of the technique to get there.
1: And Tim, um, Dr. Whitaker has used LCN testing to give evidence in hundreds of cases around the world. Correct, including um, I think you mentioned in a previous podcast, Peter Falconio.
2: Yes, uh, that's and he confirmed that um, today. That he said it would be in the hundreds, certainly, and, uh, and and some of those would be very well known to our, our listeners. Um, Peter Falconio, who was the backpacker who was murdered. Um, in outback australia um his ultimately his killer bradley murdoch was was convicted in 2005 2006 and dr whitaker gave uh, gave evidence in that trial um and uh, listeners if they're really interested can can look up dr Whitaker and he's, he's actually got a very handy list of cases that he's uh, that he's testified in all over the world sweden um, ireland new zealand um that island one was was a particularly important one in in europe it was it was to do with some bombings um in the uh in the town of omar in ireland and it was actually that trial or the result of that trial um that led to low copy copy number testing being suspended by the home office for use in courts for for a for many many months actually while they looked into the results of that trial and the DNA results itself so um and at that time then low copy number became a sort of very hot topic around the world in in the DNA circles obviously forensic science circles but also in justice circles eventually the home office um cleared low copy number testing for use in the courts again and it has been used many many times um since um all over the world other labs have developed their own use of it so it was obviously this is FSS in the UK but then sort of lots of labs or several labs around the world sort of replicated their results and replicated their testing procedures and and the validation techniques Um, and then as we discussed previously FSS itself actually closed down in 2012 as Dr. Whittaker explained himself this morning, many of the principal forensic scientists from FSF at that time set up their own company, um, which is where um, Dr. Whittaker works um, to this day.
1: Okay, Tim. Well, maybe if you can now talk about uh, Dr. Whittaker's involvement in Claremont, which I understand stood in two thousand, uh, started in two thousand and eight.
2: Yes, that's right, Matt. So as i said dr Whittaker was the one of the principal reporting scientists at fss he was based up in weatherby which is up in yorkshire but when the uh, glenon sample when the macro task force decided that they wanted to go down this route um they literally figuratively and uh, physically did they traveled to the uk with all these um all these samples um in uh, in late august beginning of september 2008 and then they basically had a meeting with some of the top, top scientists at FSS to pre-assess what all the physical um, exhibits were, what the possible results could be, how they would go about getting them, and um, in, in what order they would do them. Uh, they, they had priorities. And those priorities actually didn't include Kira's fingernails at the time. Um, they, had, they, they had stuff that they wanted tested before those, principally hairs. Um, But they they did want everything tested, but obviously that would take many, many months. And so it did take about three months for them to get round to doing Kira's fingernails. Um, We've heard from the scientists previously that actually conducted that testing um, over a couple of weeks. Um, And it was uh, similar in in, um, process, the swabbing and the extraction and all that. But as uh, uh, Brennan's just explained, it was actually the cycling or the the running of these tests and the the more cycles that they ran, um, the the deeper down or the the more precise they could be, I suppose, but as Dr. Whittaker explained himself today, the amount, the the, the number of cycles you run, you risk overexposing was the way he describes the the sample. So if you run it too many times, it could become useless basically. Um, and then it was Dr. Whitaker's job to actually analyze these samples when they were first run and then second run because they have to do it twice, replicate the results to make sure that they're not getting an, an anomalous result, that they, what they're seeing is actually there. And so that's what he did um, in, in the first and then third week of December 2008. He got these results emailed to, them, to him and uh, the way he explained it was that the when he looked at AJM40 and AJM42 um he could see quite clearly um he said um the a, a mixed result a full mixed result which showed both a male and female dna that result was run again he got the same result again and then it was basically a process of elimination of finding out what the uh what Kira's um alleles markers were taking them out of the sample and what was left behind was this male um, DNA sample which detectives had been looking for, praying for, searching for for so many years. Um, the, the, the test that was used at the time looked at 10 um, loci on the DNA strand and all 10 of those were full with something or with someone's DNA and then when that process of elimination was done they had the markers left he sent that result back to um, Western Australia in very early 2009 and as we've heard previously when Laurie Webb ran those through the WA DNA database they got a hit for the uh, for the same person that um, that had committed or was or was, whose DNA were on the samples of that Karakata rape back in 1995 and so that was the process um he went through, and then he went through another process because um obviously detectives were very excited, very interested in what had been found, and so they sent the samples from that Karakata rape to f s s to be um um run through their test um so it could be run through the same um process, get the exactly the same um markers and sets of results and once again Dr. Whittaker described going through those results and ticking off each of the alleles and each of the markers and they and they perfectly matched basically so they knew or they thought they knew that they had a major breakthrough um because they could then work on the basis that the the man or the person that had committed the raping karakata in 95 was the same man whose dna was had been found on on, on kira or under kira's fingernails
1: Brendan, it might be helpful if you can explain to us, I know we have talked about it already, but if you can explain to us the alleles um, and what they're actually looking at. So what are you physically seeing that uh, you can say, okay, this is male DNA where we didn't expect it?
0: Yeah, so we we get all of our genetic information from our mum and our dad, and, and we get half from mum, half from dad. Um, so when we look at these, these markers or these um loci as 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 you're hearing um we're identifying fragments of dna that coincide with that derived from your mum and your dad so um you you will have so e- each one of those are called an allele so you will have two alleles one from mum one from dad now in a forensic profile. Uh, we're referring to those as uh, an allele designation or or you'll you'll be familiar with the 10 or 11 or 12 um, or whatever the number is that that we call that allele. What that number actually means is we're looking at a region of DNA that has an element that repeats throughout it. Now, to try and keep it as simple as possible... um, we, all, we kind of know that DNA is made up of these uh, small nucleotide or nucleotides that we know as our A, our T, G, or C, those, those um, characteristic letters that you come to know as being the DNA code. Um, so to use an imaginary mar- marker, for example, or an imaginary uh, locus, or loci is the plural, uh, we might have a repeating element of AATG, aatg aatg and it's just a factor of our genetics that we have these areas that this repeats a number of times so when you're hearing you know in a court case or, or a forensic profile this number 10 that goes with that that means in that person that sequence was that little sequence of nucleotides was repeated 10 times so in in you it might be repeated 10 times at me in me it might be repeated 12 times which is what gives me a 12 in my profile and and someone else a 10. now when two people uh, come together and and make a baby um, they pass on those alleles or those repeated sequences to their offspring so we get one from mum and one from dad now if by coincidence mum and dad both have 10 repeats they get 10 10 if mum and dad have different a different number of repeats it might they might get the 10 and the 12 when we look at a dna result that that comes off our analyzers we we visualize it graphically as these peaks um, which which it's hard to explain but are just like vertical kind of uh bits of signal that you see on what we call an electropherogram that indicate whether there's a 10 or a twelve, for instance, um, and that becomes the DNA profile of that person. So they're what we call the alleles are uh, the ten and the twelve. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And um, Tim, it was very interesting when Dr. Whitaker was asked about what condition the DNA was. This is the DNA of the male profile and the DNA of Kira. When he was asked what condition that was in.
2: Yes, that. So um, this, um, it goes to several questions uh, and it also goes to a question that we've been asked a lot by the listeners um, about the possibility of 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 other dna being on both jane and kira's body and why it wasn't there and and dr Whittaker was asked about a a technical way that they can show or see in these um, dna peaks that brennan's just explained and the way they Uh, um, decrease in height from left to right which has been shown or known in court as a a ski slope and the way he explained it was if you see them reducing in height as they go along it means that it's a degraded piece of DNA and that degradation can take several forms and and be caused by several things including light, heat, humidity and also as we've heard previously that Dr. Whittaker confirmed decay or putrefaction or in this case the decomposition of both Jane and Kira which we know is quite advanced in in both of them and uh, and he was asked um through this actual um EPG this 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 um ladder of spikes that we were looking at on the on the court screen whether he could see that that degradation there and he said in 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 both cases or both epgs both runs he could see it and then he was asked what he could make of that um and and his answer uh brendan surprised you i think
0: a a little bit um I suppose to give some context to that uh, because I, I was in the courtroom today uh, when Dr. Whitaker gave this evidence uh, because I've, I've not myself been privy to uh, testimony that includes LCN evidence, so it was quite a uh, professional development opportunity for me. Um, what, what we're referring to in this, this ski slope shape we see is um, when, you, when we look at these graphs, these electropherograms, The DNA signal on the left-hand side of the electropherogram is from quite short fragments of DNA. The signal on the right-hand side of the electropherogram is from longer lengths of DNA. Now, when DNA gets degraded, the long pieces uh, are the ones that get broken up and degraded first. Um, And so what we see is we lose signal on that right-hand side of an electropherogram. So when we see an electropherogram that that or this dna graph i suppose that has um this ski slope appearance it can be indicative of degradation um there's there's other factors that can cause it but degradation is the most common cause to that ski slope um ski slope shape
1: So, Tim, did Dr Whittaker say that um, the DNA profiles had been exposed to the same conditions?
2: He pretty much did not. That's exactly right. Um, His assumption or his reading of that was that the DNA from both um, Kira and the male um, contributor, um, by his reading... Um, had been exposed to, or or could be said to have been exposed to, the the same elements um, at the same time, Um, which would obviously um, go to the fact that that, that it was deposited at the same time um, and then had been there for the same amount of time as Kira's DNA had.
1: So Brendan, can we interpret that to mean that the DNA is in the same place at the same time at the crime scene?
0: No. Um, we The only comment we can make on the basis of two contributors to a DNA profile both showing degradation is that the contributions from both contributors are degraded. We can't speak to the nature of how it's degraded. We can't speak to the fact that they've both degraded under the same conditions—that's—that's that's an inference that I, I'd never be willing to make, um, and I don't think anyone, any forensic biologist, would be able to make. Um, all all we can infer from that is that both contributors, the DNA from both contributors, is degraded.
1: So if you have a DNA sample which has been collected quite quickly um, and stored in a freezer and you have a DNA sample that has been exposed to the elements, do they look quite different in this ski slope situation?
0: Yeah, they do. Um, A a pristine uh, DNA sample, something collected quite fresh, like say for instance from a swab from from your mouth um, that's stored well, um, and extracted the DNA is extracted from it we wouldn't expect to see degradation in a sample like that we would expect to see a reasonably even balance from the left-hand side of the electropherogram to the right-hand side similar peak heights we, we do get you know it, it's it's not an exact science per se in in that how much ski sloping indicates how much degradation it's just it's just an indicator um, and a pristine sample we would expect to see a, a reasonable amount of balance across all loci and that's the sort of thing we're looking for when we when we analyze a DNA profile is is the uh, the the locus to locus or or the across loci balance that we have um, of peak heights of of the signal.
1: Right Uh, Tim fast forward to 2016 and um, Dr Whitaker was asked uh, about when he was asked to cross-reference the DNA with some DNA that he was sent from Edwards.
2: Yes. Um, So uh, as uh, Dr. Whittaker quite rightly pointed out, he might well have found this male DNA uh, in 2008 or certainly interpreted the results that way and then got the, uh, and then got the Karakata samples and found the same match. But like um, everyone else, they still didn't have a name. They they still didn't have anything, uh, a, a potential source to compare it to, Um, until, as you said, in 2016 after Mr Edwards had been arrested, um, he had a DNA sample taken from him by the police and that was then sent to New Zealand um, because they used the same um, uh, DNA testing um, system, the same kit, Um, so they could then convert that sample from Mr. Edwards into the same set of numbers or same types of numbers that were used by FSS in 2008. So they were comparing apples with apples. So then they got those results back from ESR. They sent those to the UK. And um, Dr. Whittaker said when he got those, he could then compare them to the samples um, from both Kira and from Karakata. And long story short, he basically said they were a perfect match. He went along um, all the boxes with the numbers in and he ticked them all off and um, every single one matched. So his evidence today, which is what we've been building up to all the way through this, was that the DNA taken from Mr. Edwards in 2016, taken from Kira in 2008 and taken from Karakata in 1995 were all from the same man. And obviously the prosecutors say that man is Mr
1: Edwards. And it was interesting that uh, he also said to the court that because in 2008 they didn't know who the male profile was, he talked about there being no bias in the results.
2: Yes, that's right. So, uh, And this was a question from, from Justice Hall. Um, and Brendan was poking me in the ribs when uh, when these questions were being asked because we sat together in court for a little while today and <laughs> Saying uh, how impressed he was that Justice Hall and it was, it was so across it all um, So it's, uh, it's not just me that's biased there. everyone thinks Justice Hall is right on the ball um, And the question was around well when you get one set of results and then you get another set of results um is there confirmation bias there are you actually um not looking afresh at the second set of results but are you just expecting to get the same ones and it was a very i mean very astute question obviously but and one that i think Dr Whittaker took some care in answering and he, and he admitted well look that there there is a chance of that because you, you know that they're from the same sample you know they you know that you're doing you're basically testing for the same thing but he did say that it, it, we always try and keep a fresh eye on them and he did point out again that all the results are peer-reviewed so it's not just one person looking at them they are then sent to another scientist in the lab he then looks at the, the epgs afresh and just checks that what you're seeing or what, what one scientist is seeing that they're seeing so he, he said that of course we're all human and it's possible but um, everything is done in the process to try and um, uh, take any bias away and, and, and make sure that, that, that one scientist is seeing what the other scientist is seeing um, and, uh, and you're not just confirming each other's results um, for the sake of it.
1: Brendan, would this question of bias be a frequently asked question of forensic scientists who take the stand?
0: It's actually quite um, an emerging area for research. Is is on this contextual bias um, that forensic examiners can have. It's it's particularly popular, uh, a particularly popular area of research around um, fingerprint experts and being and kind of seeing, looking for patterns in order to match fingerprints. Um, so we, we we're able to be a little bit more. Um, or a bit less subjective with DNA analysis because it it is what it is and we have a a whole range of guiding rules as to um, and we heard um, Dr. Whitaker today talking about the rules of how they include certain peaks and how they don't include certain peaks in, in their analysis. So while that does protect us for any of this kind of subconscious bias that we might have, it certainly adds another layer of uh, protection in our decision making to go about the the, the matching or, or or identify, interpret the results blindly.
1: Tim, do you feel that Dr. Whitaker's evidence today? felt like it strengthened the prosecution case. I know, obviously, we haven't uh, heard from defence in their cross-examination, but, um, you know, was Dr Whitaker quite compelling?
2: Well, he was certainly quite unequivocal in in, in how he made the comparisons of the results, Nat, uh, in, in terms of all of them, in terms of going from Karakata to Kira and then to the, the reference sample. He was absolutely unequivocal. And, and it was also interesting that even though they were using this low-copy number technique, which was it was specifically designed for tiny pieces of DNA. Um, he said a, a couple of times that they were that the results when he got them were, were they were very clear, unambiguous. He didn't have any, any any trouble pointing or, or picking out the the, the the X and Y chromosomes, for instance. So he, he said it was quite clear to him from from the very first test that there was something there, and even um, the, the the scientists who actually ran it. Um, before Dr. Whittaker had even seen it, had noted FM, which stands for full mixture, which stands for there were you know there were a clear two clear contributors to it. Um, you'd be worried as a prosecutor if your star witness wasn't a good witness <laughs> for, for yep. your case. But I mean, g- given his g- given his um, his background in this area, given his experience, given the cases that he's worked on. Um, and even with, I suppose, Brendan, a little bit of the contentiousness that has gone along with this this technique, um, uh, you, you can't help but think that it's going to help the prosecution case, or be a very strong plank that the prosecution will um, will eventually lean on. Um, uh, given that, as I say, they were looking for tiny, tiny bits of DNA, and the, the results would um, seem to. See even though I'm not an expert, although I feel like I'm becoming a (laughs) part expert, um, that they they, they were strong, the picks were big, um, and they were able to be um, uh, replicated and duplicated um, when they were run again um, a week later.
1: We'll have you enrolling at Murdoch University's forensics course very soon.
2: (laughs) Well, if Brendan will have me. (laughs) Of course, Tim.
1: So we have some questions for you, Brendan, from listeners. From David, is there any doubt regarding contamination of DNA? Why not simply take a new scraping sample from Kira's nails and do the tests again?
0: That's a that's a very good question. Um, now, if we're talking about contamination and we're talking about contamination relative to a fingernail, um, firstly, we we don't have well we don't entirely know where contamination has occurred so we've got a whole range of of ways to um, try and troubleshoot working out where a contamination has occurred but um, in a situation where there is contamination and it's a sample from a fingernail it's not to say that the contamination didn't occur at the point of collection collection of the fingernail or that the fingernail itself doesn't contain the contamination. Um, it's also a question of well, what is contamination? Is contamination DNA that is placed or, or, or found finds its way onto the exhibit after the offence or could it be contaminated by socially, you know, that, that exhibit like a fingernail coming into contact with DNA from a person incidentally in public before um, the offence but let's answer the second part of the question which is why not simply take a new scraping or sample from the nails well um, firstly when we take a fingernail scraping as in when we collect the material from under fingernails we're, we're running a swab underneath the uh, or the undersurface of a fingernail um, so if there is any biological material there we're removing it which means we can't go back to those those fingers um, and do that again, or we could, but we should have done it effectively the first time and recovered it all. The other side of it is, if we're collecting fingernails by clipping them off um, and then analysing them, that we we consume the nail itself um, through most analysis types, and and this is the case with all uh, or, or heaps. Most forensic uh, samples are that. When we choose to extract the DNA from it, we we get one go at that, and then that's it. Um, In saying that, once we create that DNA extract, that is a liquid extract, and we can dip back into that multiple times. So we can can test that, we can test that again, we can test that 10 years later, um, and, and that's exactly what's happened in this case, where things have been tested by various different Uh, organisations, various different countries and in a lot of cases they're dipping back into the extract because you can't go back to the the physical sample itself.
1: It also explains why the pristine samples that had been unopened were so important in this case.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's right Matt and uh, I'll just add to that obviously AGM-40 which was Kira's thumbnail that was the pristine one that was the one that was the one that had never been opened but the reason that it had never been opened was that various scientists over the years had looked at it and said it was debris only not suitable Mm. for testing because the nail was so small and there was so little nail left. Um, that that was all they could uh, that that was all they could get uh, during the the post mortem, and we've discussed that previously. We haven't seen the video. The judge obviously has. When the um, the forensic um, assistant in the lab really struggled to get anything from from Kira's thumbnail at all because it was so torn, because it was so small. Um, I mean, obviously, in an ideal world, you'd love to go back and, and get some more. But in this case, for various reasons, um, uh, it, it was simply impossible. And, do, and Dr. Whittaker reinforced that today by saying that, that, that they pulled, they, that they even had to pull the two nails because there was so little of it to, to test. And even when they did that, I think, Brendan, they had a finite amount of of, um, of DNA material that they extracted, so much so that I, th- I think it was all used up when they ran the two tests. So this really was a, one, a one-shot deal.
1: Mm. Tim, what are you expecting from court tomorrow? Will Jonathan Whitaker be back on the stand?
2: Yes, he will return for a second day. There's um, just a... a a small part of his uh, examination in chief to come and then he will be cross-examined by Mr Jovich that's expected to take most of tomorrow we think um if it doesn't then the um the prosecution have got another witness lined up this is um sue Vintner from the esr lab in um in new zealand and she will talk to the um the the probabilities that the maths that they run after that all the testing is done to um to, to put a number on the likelihood of this being mr edwards or someone else um, and that will be it. That will be the, uh, the conclusion of the DNA evidence, which uh, seems to have gone on for months. It's actually only been about <laughs> six weeks, I think. Um, and then we probably have a little break and we think um, before we get into the, uh, to the fiber evidence so everyone can uh, can gather their breath and, 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 and then um, and then go again.
1: That's right. Well, thank you both for your time today. You can email us your feedback to claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au. We'll be back tomorrow with Day 59 of Claremont in Conversation with myself, Tim and Alison Van.
0: This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.
1: If you enjoy this podcast, you might also like to download The West Live, WA's newest daily morning show hosted by Jenna Clark. News, sport, entertainment, all the issues that matter to you. You can listen live weekdays at 8.45 or download the podcast from 9.30.